Father, it's pretty easy for us to get swept up in our lives and to maybe have something needle us in the back of our mind and heart, something that we know we should do, some habit that we know we should give up, something we should be more engaged in or less engaged in in our lives, a relationship that needs attention. Some of us have been meaning to donate blood, to volunteer, to do all kinds of things that you've provoked us to by your spirit and your word to be your people. Someone that you've put in our path that we just, we haven't gotten around to it, to making that phone call or changing that pattern. God, as we begin this time of Lent, would you, and this time of confession, would you really get our attention? And we know that's a dangerous prayer to ask that you would get our attention, but we ask it in Jesus' name that you would get our attention with the things that we've been letting go and just letting pass by. That through a time of confession and reflection, we could understand more of who you've sent us to be in this time and this place. Father, help us as we open up your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Once again, amen. All right, so we're going to begin a time called Lent. If you know what Lent is, great. If you don't, that's okay too. Typically, Lent is the lead up to Easter. Spoiler alert, Jesus rises from the dead and it changes everything. Like, that's Easter. So we're headed there. And so in our time, in our build up, in our build up to Easter, I just want to invite you. Easter is a time when people are open. So if you have been thinking of inviting someone to Hope Springs, Easter might be a good time for you to do that. This series might be a good time for you to do that. We've been in this long odyssey through Genesis, and that's done with, and we're moving on. This is a great time for people to get involved in our conversation. So step out. Be bold. Um, invite people as much as, much as, that, as much as you have opportunity to over the next few weeks and then at Easter. But as we begin our time, in the text today, we're, what, what I did, I just want to give you an idea of what I did. There's these things called lectionaries. Does anyone know what a lectionary is? It's like a... It's a, it's a list of passages that pastors preach year to year. And a lot of times they do that in like real old school denominations. They'll have a lectionary where the pastor will open up and he doesn't have to pick the passage. The passage is right there. It's year A, we do this passage, and that's what we do. So this year for Lent, we don't always do this. Um, in fact, I've, I don't know that I've ever actually done it. Maybe I've done it once before. But what I did was I used text from the lectionary. So just so you know, as we move through this time, all the texts that are coming up for our time on Sunday had really... I mean, they're not random, because nothing is, right? But in some ways, I assigned myself texts to preach. Sometimes I'll do this. I like it, because it's hard. <laughs> it's not easy to do that as a pastor and as a preacher. But that's what we did. So as we do that, I want to talk to you a little bit about the text that we're going to be looking into. There is this creeping assumption in the scriptures. And if you harbor this assumption in the scriptures, please know that you're among great company because every culture and every time and every place has harbored this assumption. When we read prophetic texts and passages, and what I mean by that is texts and passages that are from prophets. A prophet can be anyone from Moses to John in the book of Revelation. When we read prophecy and prophetic texts, we think... Somewhere in our minds, I think, I'll say, I'll take responsibility for that, I think, and I think a lot of my friends have thought throughout thousands of years of human history, have thought, man, this sounds great because it sounds like God's going to get the bad guys. It sounds like when I read this text, this prophetic text, because it's talking about doom and gloom for all them sinners, right? So when we read a prophetic text, it's really easy for us as humans, really just as humans, 
to read that and go, wow, that sounds great that God's going to get him. He's going to get him. This can be a catastrophic assumption with the Bible. Now, the actual prophets, if we read them in their context and their place and time, they refute this assumption every single place and time. For prophets and for the people of the book, the people of the scriptures that follow them, that read them, that open them up, what you find when you actually read them in context and when you actually engage with them is that the prophetic texts themselves do go after the bad guys. But the bad guys are, don't end up actually being them. The bad guys actually end up being us. And that doesn't mean that they're not bad guys. And if you want to talk about like, how they're bad, okay. But the heart of the prophetic scriptures is about how have we lost our way? And how have we lost the plot? And how have we gotten sidetracked? And how have we let things go? We're going to look at passages from two prophets today. They're pretty short passages. In the first one, we are going to hear from Joel, a very tiny book in the Bible. One of my best friend's names is Joel. And like his person in no way applies to this book. Like I feel like it was like one of those deals where parents are just reading through, and his dad's a pastor. And his parents are just like going through the Bible like, Joel, that didn't do that. There was a great reason why they did it. I just don't know it. But you couldn't get any more doom and gloom. You can, but it's, it's close. Than Joel. Joel is not a happy book. Okay? It's a very small book. And you can know why it's not happy. Because the message isn't about an impending invasion. But the interesting thing about this text and about this invasion is that the invasion is not from an evil country that's going to come in and, like, tear up our society. It's actually not the kind of invasion at all. The invasion in the book of Joel is an invasion of locusts that's being prophesied. An invasion of locusts. So, literally, a group of bugs are going to get together to destroy their country. So you can imagine that when you hear that a group of locusts are going to destroy your country, it's kind of hard to say, well, the problem's outside of our country, right? It's kind of hard to say the problem is outside. It kind of suggests that the problem might be inside. This army of little flying monsters would totally decimate the economy, the food supply. It would be seen as judgment from God. We're going to pick up in Joel chapter 2, just a little bit in Joel Verses 1 and 2. It says this. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Not a happy trumpet. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large... like This is an interesting text. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. The army that he's talking about is a group of bugs that are going to come in and are going to decimate the country. As we begin a traditional time of Lent with a traditional text that's used during Lent, leading up to Easter... This is a time of reflection. You cannot experience Easter for what it is 
unless you're willing to take a hard, honest look at where you're at right now. And that's really what Lent is all about. It's about confession, and it's about sounding an alarm. It's a time during the year when someone blows on a horn in your face that gets your attention to all those things that you're just letting go. To all those, that's why people, when they come to Lent, a lot of times people will fast. Maybe some of you all are fasting for Lent, maybe you're not. We haven't like declared a Hope Springs fast and like put it on the sign or anything. But some people fast during Lent. And the reason why they fast in one sense is to get a sense of what they've been missing. And, and what I mean by what they've been missing is fasting confronts things and open up, opens up things. When you don't eat food for a certain period of time, something happens to your body. Something happens to your spirit. Something happens to your mind. You're, you're struck with the reality of your life and what's missing and what's there and what shouldn't be there. And so the writers of the scripture, the point that I want to make with this text is that the prophets are sounding an alarm, a warning. And that really, when he says the day of the Lord is coming, it's something that the people had asked for. They wanted the day of the Lord to come. Over and over again, God's people asked for God to come and intervene. But what the prophets say is, this is what happens when God comes and intervenes. Because you've totally lost track of who you are. And because you've totally lost track of who you are, I will intervene. But it's not going to be what you think it's going to be. What does this mean? We look for God to intervene all the time. We pray for it. We seek of it. Some of us beg for it. We want to see God intervene. I have conversations as a pastor with people all the time that just, why won't he just do something? But the message of the prophets is a little bit complicated. Because they spoke about God's people wanting the day of the Lord and then being really surprised about what the day of the Lord meant. When you ask God to intervene, when you ask him to judge someone, if you are honest with yourself, you may be able to realize that what we mean is we want God to get the bad guys. And the bad guys are always them. Always. Never us. But the prophets and the people of God, they found out in ancient times that asking God to intervene against the bad guys is pretty risky. Because you may find out that it actually isn't them, but it is us. What happens when you ask God to combat the darkness when there's darkness in your own words, in your own actions, in your own country, in your own attitudes, in your own judgments? Sound an alarm, the prophets say, God is coming. So much blackness. It'll literally look like darkness is over the face of the earth. There's going to be so many bugs. But there's always good news, right? And later on in verse 12, we see some pivot in what God is saying. He says, sound this alarm, but it's not over yet. Look at verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, even now with a plague of locusts, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Even now, he says, even after all this, he says, whatever your this is, it isn't too late. And it isn't too early. Now is the time because now is the only time that there ever was. Return with your heart. Return with your guts. Return with all of it. Come back home to who you are. You are a child of the divine, a child of God, made in God's image, marred, broken, lost maybe, but come back. And he says with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. He says, 
Let your body reflect the state of your heart. Put yourself in a position where you can feel your need and not just intellectually think about it. When you get repentance, when you see how you've run off the rails, you get that it will take time and it will take tears and it will take fasting. Look at verse 13. Rend your heart, he says, and not your garments. In the ancient world, when you were struck with grief and you were overcome by it, you would tear your clothes and you would sit in ashes. It was sackcloth and ashes. Rend your garments to express your grief. But here in the text, Joel says, forget about your garments. Rend your heart. Forget about what you wear and the outward appearance. What about your heart? Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and He relents from sending calamity. There's always a chance. There's always a possibility for return. Now, He just said to fast and weep, right? But... Rend your heart and not your garments. So does he care about what you do or, or not what you do or what you feel? or what, All those categories that we make, all those clever boxes that we put our heart, I'm going to put my heart over here. I'm going to put my mind over here. I'll put my soul. I don't even know what a soul is, but I'll put it over here. I'll put my attitudes and my actions. I'll put my work life here. I'll put my home life here. I'll put, we'll, we'll get it all in boxes, cleverly arranged. The scriptures blow that up completely. Because he'll say, rend your heart and not your garments, but like fast and cry. If you get it, fast and cry. Mourn over the broken things that you see in yourself and in your community. Rip up your heart. It's going to be okay. Because that's where God's at. Look at verse 17. It says, let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is your God? The story that's being told here is that Joel is telling priests and the people to humble themselves and to rend their heart so that the whole world wouldn't look at this people and see them as an object of scorn. Hopefully this is starting to make a little sense here. That the whole world would not look at a group of people that say they got it. That do not get it. And say, this proves that there is no God. Because they don't get it. And they say they get it. This is the message from the prophets over and over and over and over again. There is this sense that a country who professes to represent the kingdom of God on the planet could be looked at as a laughing stock, as a, hypo, a hypocritical sham. Maybe we'll just leave that there before it gets too close. Look at Isaiah 58. We're going to switch over to a different prophet in a different place in a different time. Again, these are historic texts used to kind of till up the hard soil of our lives and our regular habits and get at the things that we've been missing. You may wonder why I get loud sometimes. Isaiah 58 verse 1, it says, Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. What do you think the people of God wanted from God? 
to go get their sins. God, would you come out and, t- and, and just prove how they are wrong and we are right. Come out and get the nations that come against us. But God tells Isaiah and he tells me in Isaiah that the most dangerous thing for God's people is not them. It's us. And he says, don't hold back. The writers of the scriptures have harsh words for God's people. Interesting that he says here, the descendants of Jacob. He could have said the descendants of Israel because Jacob got a new name, right? Jacob meant the deceiver. We've already been through all this. We're like, we know, we know. Jacob was called the deceiver. Israel was he who wrestled with God and men and prevailed. He could have said Israel. But he says, no, the descendants of their lying father, Jacob. Look at verse 2. For day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager, seem eager to know my ways. As if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Does any of this sound familiar? Like if you're, if you're reading this and it gets uncomfortable for you, why? If we're reading this, this story about people who are eager to know God's ways, they seem they, 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 as if they were a nation that does what is right. They cried out for justice and it's all become meaningless. If it, if it hits you, why, I mean, if it hits us, why does it hit us? Does any of this seem familiar? They go to church gatherings, they pray, they do things that are good, but what have we done as a people? And how has my action and my engagement contributed to the place where we are as a people? If I'm going to go through Lent, I'm going to confess, and I'm going to humble myself and try and understand where we're at. If we've asked for justice, for God to come near, what happens when he comes near and tells us that we are the problem? Look at verse 3. It says, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. The subtext here is that there's a misunderstanding of our relationship with God. Why haven't you seen us? Why haven't you noticed us? We deserve your notice. Isaiah says to God's people, you're doing religious things to get noticed. Meanwhile, your actions aren't any different than anyone else's. You exploit all your workers. Like, in case this is just spiritual, esoteric stuff, I gotta say, Isaiah, like, be careful because people might construe this as economics or politics. But Isaiah is doing this on purpose because how can we separate our fasting from our economics or from our politics? How can we separate the state of our hearts from the state of the nation? Isaiah doesn't. He doesn't in this text. We want to keep it separate. 
But it can't. He eviscerates us personally and corporately. And he says, what are you doing to try to get God's attention? Look at verse 4. Fasting, again, is just it's a cipher for any spiritual work. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Isaiah claims that your religion isn't helping you or anyone else if this hits you. That your claims of great prayers, good, good thoughts, your internal landscape is making nothing but a negative impact on the outward landscape. He says you cannot expect to be heard if you don't expect to change. And that goes for all of us. Because we see the specks in other eyes and we can't get the logs out of our own. We call that spirituality. Look at verse 5. Is this the kind of fast that I've chosen, God is speaking? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Look at verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? So he says, if you want to get spiritual, if you want to do spiritual work, if you want to actually be the people that God has sent you to become, this is the kind of fast. To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. These are folks who have been imprisoned, imprisoned in every way, imprisoned physically, in jail prison, imprisoned psychologically, imprisoned by addiction, imprisoned by ideology, but mostly imprisoned by actually being in prison. Anything that locks anyone up anywhere. God says, if you want to know me, do you want to fast and pray? Do you want to actually make a difference? Do you want to be the person that God has created you to be? You want to be on my side, he says? Be on their side. The side of the oppressed. The side of those enslaved by all kinds of yokes. But wait. I thought if we just tried really hard, we can all make our own dreams come true. Like, what does this say about our narrative culturally? About how if you want it, you can do it. And the subtext of that, that if I got mine, that means you can get yours. What does this say of the narrative of picking yourself up and taking care of yourself? I don't know about you, but the, the prophets seem to say that if God's people are God's people, they're on the side of the oppressed. They're on the side of the enslaved. Will, will you notice that he doesn't say why they're enslaved? Or why they're oppressed? I, Isaiah doesn't even touch the issue of whether or not they deserve to be in prison. Whether or not they deserve to be addicted because of decisions they made. It doesn't even come into it for him. 
It doesn't even come into it for Jesus. We're going to see by the end of this. He says for, for a fasting, like going without food, look at verse 7. Is, is it not, is this spiritual work not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? And when you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? To share our food, to share our shelter, to share our clothes. To partner with the warming shelter and with opportunities unlimited. To, to put our lives in a position to make friends and share. To share. You know, in case we're wanting to interpret this with all spiritual fluffy metaphors, immediately the writer throws out what you eat and where you go and what you wear. What are your resources and how are you using them? How's this for a fast? And then at the end of that text, we want to read your own flesh and blood. <laughs> and for me, you know, I, I, I used to think that that was kind of like a, an escape. <laughs> but you know, the, 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 the hungry and the, and the naked and the enslaved, like if we just take care of the like, people I'm related to, that's what that really means. Your own flesh and blood. What, what does the writer mean when he says your own flesh and blood? He's talking to a nation of people who are all related to each other. He doesn't mean just like my mom, dad, sister, brother. He means not just your flesh, your countrymen. The prophet convicts us who have given up on our fellow Americans. Our fellow citizens. And it's just a good, tough question in the days that we live in. Have you given up on any of your fellow Americans? And, and what does it look like for us to partner with God in loving and serving the oppressed? Look at verse 8. Then, you want to get spirit, you want to get real with God and in this relationship with Him? and you do the stuff that actually matters in the world, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. You notice the repetition of your, your healing, your righteousness, the stuff you've been looking for your whole life that you thought you could get by getting. <laughs> it turns out you get by giving. It turns out that if you want your healing, you gotta go heal someone else. And if you want your righteousness, you got to fight for what's right in your community. And if you want to be free, you have to actually free other people. And then, your light, your healing, your righteousness, your rear guard, if you want God to show up and intervene and bless and move, get to showing up and intervening and blessing and moving. You may wonder here if God is tricking you into loving other people for selfish reason. But I guess when you love others, something else happens to you. I guess there's no way to exact out a blessing from God like a vending machine. He says in verse 9, Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You want Him to hear you, call for that. And you will cry for help and He will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and we could do with so much less of all of that. When we think of ourselves and about what we need and what we are owed and about how they messed up and they deserve judgment, we end up lost. 
You want to find God, you have to love people. And when you love people, you find God. If you do away with oppression in all of its forms, spiritual, physical. So here's a question, couple. Here's a question for our culture. How can you fight oppression when you don't think there is any oppression? Like, how, how can you do that? When we spend a lot of time explaining why oppressed people are just, they just earned it. They deserve it. They messed up. Like, if we don't get into the trenches with the oppressed, what does that make us? Who does that make us? I mean, the last part of this verse is tough and challenging for me because I want to point fingers. Malicious talk is about plotting evil against another person. The pointing finger in the malicious talk is about blaming and scheming against others. And this has been really tough for me personally because this verse isn't about calling out oppression and injustice and speaking up about the evil in a society. But a lot of people will read that and they will say, well, like, don't, like, be nice. And don't talk about this stuff. This is a difficult thing because Isaiah is calling out oppression and injustice and speaking up against the evil in a society. Now, speaking up without love and kindness is meaningless. Faith without works is dead. But putting band-aids on issues without speaking to systemic problems in a society is a different kind of blindness that we don't see in the scriptures. We wouldn't even have these texts if God didn't tell Isaiah, open your mouth and say something. That's not the same thing as malicious talk, I hope. Because I'm doing it right now. You know, it just, it, I, I think about Isaiah's time and I think about what he's going through. And I can picture a bunch of well-meaning people coming to him and saying, you know, dude, you're coming off a little judgmental. You know, like this is getting too close to home. But he says that if we want to be on God's side, we're going to be on the side of the oppressed. Look at verse 10. We're almost done. Hang in there. I know this one's rough. And if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. Is he advocating making the hungry and the oppressed jump through whatever hoops you have to get help? Like he says, spend your money, spend yourself on behalf of the hungry. Make a friend who's hungry and get in their lives and be in a relationship with them. And hungry in any way. If you satisfy the needs of the oppressed, I, I do that without wondering, like, what did you do to make yourself oppressed? That doesn't even come into it for the writers of the scripture. Do you want to fight the darkness? Do you want to see light rise and grow? Isaiah offers you to spend yourself, your money, your time, your talent, yes, and more, much more. Spend yourself. Make a friend. You know, we've been going to OU for four years, five years. I've been going there for... I mean, I was out of town for a long time, but I've been going there off and on for over a decade. 
and we go into the warming shelter, and we'll go into these situations where I want as a pastor to just sit in a corner and just know, hey, we did great stuff here. Like we spent some money in a good way, you know? We did the right thing with our money. We, we, we ponied up and we actually met a need that really matters. And, and I feel good about that. And to actually get to know someone is gonna be really hard in this situation. I just want you to know that's in my head and heart. And that getting to know people's lives and their oppression dramatically transforms how you see people and how you see oppression. Because when you sit with someone who is addicted to drugs, and in your voice you have a, in your head you have a voice saying, well, why can't they just get a job? Why can't they, why can't they just this? Why can't they just that? And you know, the thing that actually undoes that is getting to know someone. Getting to know someone. And the thing that actually changes you is actually getting to know someone. Our friends at Opportunities Unlimited are some of my favorite people in the whole world. Selfishly, they're some of my favorite people in the whole world. Because I get to know them and I get to understand life from a totally different perspective. You get to understand what it's like to not even be able to say what you're thinking, which to me is like hell. <laughs> like, to not be able to talk about what's going on. To not be able to feed yourself or dress yourself and to still somehow bring joy to this world. It is, it's powerful. But I just wanna encourage you, if you're hearing this message, there's a lot of different ways you could respond. I, I just want to, can you get to know someone that's not like you? In whatever way, it's not like you. And for you, getting to know someone who, who's oppressed might be getting to know someone that has way more than you and the oppression that comes with that. So for, for some of you, getting to know someone else is going to be about breaking out of your own internal monologue to build a relationship with someone. God promises us. We're afraid. We think it's going to hurt us. We think it's going to go bad. God says it's going to go well for you if you spend yourself. It says in verse 11 and 12, the Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. He will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. I got a bone to pick with preachers on this text. Because if I pull this text out of its context and I put it on a doily or I hang it on the wall and I just read, he's going to guide you always, he's going to satisfy your needs, you'll be a well-watered garden. What context is he talking about? He's saying, as you go and minister to the oppressed, that's when your needs are going to be satisfied. And that's how you're going to be led and guided in your life. It's not some like verse you can pull out of context and say, well, just do whatever you want. God's going to guide you. You're in the team. You're on the fam in the family. So everything's, he's saying, this is the context of prophecy that undoes that kind of thinking. Yes, he promises to be with us and he promises to guide us and he promises to provide for us. But it looks to me like it's in the context of fulfilling our mission as his people. 
Look at verse 12. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls. How's that for a nickname? Restorer of streets with dwellings. Now, streets with dwellings sounds like ancient language. Like, restorer of neighborhoods, communities, homes. Do you want to be a part of that work? Because I do. Like, that sounds like the best thing we could ever be a part of. It's helping people rebuild their life and their home. It's helping people, coming alongside people and, and, and helping us take steps that haven't been taken in generations. You get to be part of something huge here. You get to always have God with you. You get to be a well-watered garden as you go with God and as you are convicted and moved to side with the oppressed. Now, I want to share with you one more text. And I don't necessarily... Well, the only reason I'm sharing this text with you is for that lingering kind of thought that maybe some of us have and I would have coming to this text. Maybe you don't. That's great. But the text of like, okay, so this is like Old Testament stuff. It's about ancient Israel. Maybe that's like a there and then kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like, what about the New Testament? I hear that. Like, what about... What about Jesus? Like, because Jesus was all about just like a spiritual revolution, right? Well, Jesus gets up in the temple when he's starting his ministry as a traveling preacher, teacher, speaker, healer, savior, all of it. And what he does, he asks for Isaiah to be brought to him in a scroll because they had scrolls back then. And he opened up to this particular spot. And to begin his ministry, he says this in Luke chapter 4. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the kind of fast that God has chosen. How are we going to take part? together. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I want you to think about the fast that God has chosen for you. And if you're giving up sugar or coffee or food for Lent, go for it. Live it up. Position of your body physically will affect your soul, yes. But I want to ask you the deeper question today, and it is this. What is the fast that God has chosen for you? What is the way, the tangible way that you can side with the oppressed today? That you can help someone who's blind see? That you can help release someone who's in prison? What does it look like for you? What does it look like for you? You know, and if you're hearing this and you're like, man, I, chill out. I'm on the right track. I feel good about where things are at. What's the next step? What's the next step for you? But if this text did something to you, provoked you, challenged you, convicted you, respond. 
What's the fast that God has chosen for you? Father, we confess that as the liturgy says, we haven't loved you with our whole heart. We haven't loved our neighbor as ourselves. God, we thank you for texts that get our attention, that wake us up. Would you wake us up, Father? Would you get our attention about the things in our life that we have let go, that we have let pass us by, the opportunities to side with someone who's oppressed, in any way oppressed, who's in prison, in any way in prison, who's afflicted, in any way afflicted, who's blind, in any way blind. Father, wake us up by your spirit, not to pointing fingers and malicious talk and forgive us, forgive me, where I want to do that instead of getting involved and working. God, I pray for this community of faith and for these people that you would take us in our next adventure of partnering with you and seeing people loved and served and set free. Show us as a community of faith how to better do that. God, show this group of people that are hearing my voice that they would take their next step, that you would put something very tangible in their minds and in their hearts, maybe something that's been there for years. Would they say yes? Would they jump in? Would they be part of seeing people set free? Father, may our time of Lent and our time of preparation for Easter not just be noise, not just be a pep rally with no teeth, God, but we read your word and we are convicted to go deeper. God, take us by your spirit, by your word to be your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us today. Come on back next week for some more in Lent. If you're giving an offering, there is a box in the back. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.